0: MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization founded and led by Saurabh Sadat Lajavardi called Musicians for Musicians. This monthly podcast is co hosted by MFM members and musicians Adam Reifstech and yours truly, Dawood Kringle. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self betterment. Whether through education, networking or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags on social media, hashtag unity in the music community and hashtag making music as a profession. We encourage you to visit musiciansformusicians.org and to join our organization. If you'd like to become a supporter, you may do so by visiting our website. Again, that's musiciansformusicians.org. Our guest today is Jeffrey Green. Jeffrey is a professional musician, composer, and theorist, and sales engineer with Sweetwater, the world's largest online musical instrument retailer based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He holds a Bachelor of Music and Music Engineering Technology from Ball State University where he also won a Distinguished Music Award in 2012. He holds certifications from Avid, DigiDesign, Apogee, Moog, and is skilled with recording, synthesizers, software, DAWs, MIDI, and controllers. He is also a talented and experienced cellist, with experience performing on the cello at raves, classical recital halls, clubs, and festivals. Before we begin, let's listen to some of Jeffrey's music. This is a song he did with techno artist Steve Stoll called Tangled. Thank you for joining us at MFM Speaks Out. My pleasure to be here. Ah, Glad to have you. Okay, let's start at the beginning. What inspired you to start making music, and why the cello?
1: Well, the cello specifically, when I was in fourth grade and 10 years old, uh, I decided I really wanted to get into some music. I always loved music as a child, and uh, so we were given the option of three different instruments that we could try out. And uh, it was, if I remember correctly at the time, it was cello, trombone and some other low frequency instrument. I can't even remember now at this point. But uh, yeah, I was always attracted to the, for whatever reason, to kind of the, some of the lower range instruments and whatnot. So mm-hmm. I decided to give the cello a shot. And uh, even for a child, I had quite a record collection, a lot of 45s and whatnot. My parents always encouraged me on that. Um, my mother's very musical. You know, she was a piano teacher for me. I actually took lessons from her as well, especially when I was in elementary and middle school. And uh, so they always encourage that. And so I've come from somewhat of a musical background that way. You also have a background in synthesizers,
0: uh, obviously. Uh, how did you get interested in electronic music?
1: Um, well, growing up as... Probably more or less a child of the 80s, you know, a lot of new wave type mm-hmm. stuff coming on board. And um, I was always intrigued by some of the, you know, sounds that I heard on records, you know, back in the early 80s and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, when I <clears throat> probably in my later high school years and whatnot, I had a, a friend who. Uh, who had purchased a synthesizer, uh, if I remember correctly, it was an old Roland Juno, And, uh, mm. so we used to fiddle around with that in his bedroom occasionally. And, <laughs> uh, I, I just was pretty enamored with a lot of the, uh, what I heard that was coming out of that. I uh, also, I've always been somebody that's really into a lot of, uh, science fiction you know literature and movies and whatnot and hearing things like close encounters of the third kind and Mm. star wars and all that stuff you know i I, you know it seemed very retro futuristic (laughs) or i guess Mm. at that time just futuristic uh with lots of zaps and lasers and whatnot so um that always intrigued me when i got to uh, college at ball state um they had a pretty nice synthesizer collection there, and a whole really? wall taken up of old modular equipment and things of that nature. So I, um, I spent a lot of hours, a lot of late nights, patching stuff together and making weird and crazy sounds, and all kind of gel together that way. How
0: did you get into recording and audio?
1: Yeah, actually, the earliest experiments that I can remember are uh, my uh, father uh, was in the army, and went to Vietnam, and actually. Came back uh, with a a reel to reel stereo system with a big tube amplifier. And so, you know, he started collecting a lot of music on reel to reel tape. And uh, of course, I could also record to it. And so I figured out how to do that. And I, plug my guitar right into the stereo receiver and would record on the on the reel to reel that way and bounce things around and reverse it and you know do some basic stuff like that unfortunately for my dad's angst I uh, <laughs> I blew up the stereo receiver by plugging my guitar into it too of many course. times and probably playing it too loud and <laughs> all that good stuff um then after that I I really um, I invested in a little Tascam four-track, probably like so many of us have, and when I was in high school and started was that doing a cassette some more.
0: Machine or exactly,
1: yeah, oh, cassette, cassette machine. So yeah, used to do a lot of kind of basic multi-tracking with mostly my guitar and just banging around on stuff at home. I had a cheap little microphone that I can't remember where that came from, and so that was that was the start of it. Can you talk about uh, some of your uh, experience in uh, live performance? So yeah, I uh, I played in a couple bands uh starting in high school and you know super basic kind of punk rock sort of things I guess you'd say. Mm. And um yeah, the uh you know playing at all ages clubs and that sort of thing was kind of the beginning of it. Um but I really I I got pretty heavy into the whole kind of electronic music scene and you know, I was always more interested in doing more kind of like live PA style things where I'd bring out instruments and sequence them and play them, you know, as I started to acquire more gear.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, so that's a lot of my performance has been along those lines. Um, I'm kind of known as, you know, at least amongst some folks as the guy who plays his cello along with kind of the electronic music and whatnot, and whether that's more of a ambient experimental setting or more of a, you know, straight ahead kind of groove techno type thing um, mm-hmm. done a lot of that sort of thing and performed in Chicago and Detroit Indianapolis and, and that sort of thing bands never really went anywhere um, did, did you know basic local type of, of gigs that way but that, that's most of my experience there yeah it's uh, it seems
0: that you know when you were talking about that it uh, kind of reminded me that there's a present trend of solo artists who play to their to their own loopers or uh, uh, backing tracks or whatever electronic things that they devised, you know, uh, uh, Ableton things that they put together and uh, but you were doing this at a for this actually became a thing, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Maybe a little bit before that. And yeah, I think Ableton has really opened the back door for a lot of folks um, to be able to perform the, the way they want to that way. But yeah, before I had a laptop, I, um, definitely did a few years of shows where i use a looper pedal or actually just a digital delay pedal um, that I would really? play into and yep and uh, trying to get all that stuff back then synced up together and you know could be quite a challenge sometimes so there was more than a few train wrecks that happened yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's an art form in itself I noticed the early electronics
0: things the techno artists hip-hop DJ's uh, the dub artists that came out of the reggae scene in uh, Jamaica, like King Tubby, absolutely, uh, where they had to, you know, do it the hard way, uh, you know, syncing up all of these things that are at every single second that they're performing
1: that's threatening to go completely out of control. <laughs> I think that's part of the appeal of, of you know, especially live performance having a bit of a danger element to it, and you know, I, I think a lot of people kind of especially nowadays, almost kind of revolt against the idea of things being too perfectly in sync and, and you know, feeling too canned that way and, and mm-hmm. you know, bringing some kind of that improvisational aspect, whether it's, you know, live processing or, you know, performance is just more interesting in general, you know, see yeah. folks take some chances that way
0: exactly taking chances and uh mm. trying to create something that's uh that's never been created before and uh, and of course like you said the danger element the that adrenaline rush of uh, just keeping this gigantic electronic beast under control right um do you do you still perform live and uh, are recordings of any of your music available
1: um i haven't i've not played live for a while now and mm. I, that's something i'd still like to get back into um of course the last couple of years have obviously been a challenge for everybody in yes. that regard. Um, and I've, I've got uh, little pieces of stuff out there in the world. Um, and it's has been, I've been meaning for a long time just to kind of consolidate all my recordings and um, get them in a central repository, whether it's a website or, or getting my SoundCloud dialed in a little bit better, but
2: mm, yeah, something I'm working maybe. on.
1: Yeah, there you go. Let me- yeah. Bandcamp is good for that. You also have a background
0: in classical cello have you uh, done live performances of uh, of classical music on cello or any live r- or any recordings of classical cello uh
1: no recordings but i uh you know i guess i i had enough skill in high school that i was um the featured soloist for the all city orchestra and mm-hmm. did a performance there um that was the first time i learned a piece of music at length from memory which was quite a challenge. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed to say I can't even remember what the piece is at this point. It was so long ago. But I uh, I uh, actually ended up playing the very last couple measures first, and we had to start over again, and I was mortified. Because uh, oh. <laughs> oh. it was I, I, more or less identical. It was just a couple notes that were different. And so we stopped and started over again, and then I did okay. but uh, uh, <laughs> And I played in the uh, the Ball State Symphony, um, but that's about the extent of my experience in the, in the classical world that way.
0: And of course, you've also uh, those skills have also served you well in
1: your uh, in your use of uh, cello with electronic music. I would imagine. Yeah, I've always been into the idea of kind of pushing the envelope. Um, uh, You know, I'm attracted to a lot of kind of traditional instruments, but um, you know, going beyond whether that's extended technique or um, using a lot of processing um, interests me. Um, in fact, I just remembered um, probably the most, one of the more radical things that I did when I was younger was uh, performed at the local art museum here. And we set up a, a quad system where I basically, mm. uh, I have an electric cello, a couple of them, one of them that will actually allow you to send the output of each string to its own channel. Um, so I, I basically would run one string of the cello into each speaker and uh of course I probably made the audience a little seasick maybe with playing arpeggios and <laughs> spun around the room. Yeah. <laughs>
0: oh man, I'm stealing but the, that idea.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that that, uh, that was fun. a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. It was it was a lot of fun actually. <laughs> oh beautiful, beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 something that uh, artists definitely have to do
1: is push the envelope like that, just explore and experiment. I'm pretty intrigued by um, some of the more experimental artists out there that are using things like Macs um, Mm -hmm. software and, you know, pushing things a little bit further that way that are actually, you know, uh, using the computer to create parts and to have a dialogue with that way. Um, Some of the more experimental things I've heard of have been really intriguing that way. So I I can see myself maybe moving more in that direction. Hmm. Um, Doing some more kind of algorithmic stuff with computers and whatnot.
0: Let's take a break. This is a theme song from a new cartoon series Jeffrey worked out with his son Griffin called Rift Raft. How did you get started in musical instrument retail did you start at Sweetwater or was that a step up from like another uh, earlier job that you might have had at a local music store?
1: Oh, I, I started at Sweetwater um, really? so it's a pretty unique story there I uh, um, so when I graduated from Ball State back in 1992 I um of course, my father was uh, pushing me to get a job immediately as soon as I graduated. <laughs> um, of course. So, yes. So I came back home and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought at that time that I would probably end up uh, going to work in a recording studio. Um, was my goal? Maybe move to New York, actually, or you know, one of the hot spots, L.A., Nashville, Miami, something like that. Um, but I decided before I did that, I needed to save a little bit of money. So I looked up the local recording studios in the yellow pages. This is pre-internet days, basically. And um, I saw this place called Sweetwater. So it said they were a recording studio, So I, I picked up the phone and gave them a ring. And um, they told me, well, we're, we're not hiring um, in the studio, but we do have this small retail uh, space where we're selling things. And we're starting to hire salespeople for that. Um, so I went out and had an interview and the whopping six or seven sales guys that were already there, uh, were generally older and had already had some experience. So I was hired as the very first assistant at Sweetwater to these Mm -hmm. sales guys. And the plan was to, uh, basically, uh, work for a year as an assistant. And then hopefully I gleaned enough knowledge that, uh, could move up into the sales, what's called a sales engineer position at Sweetwater. And we were already at that point starting to grow like gangbusters. And yeah. uh, so after about seven or eight months, um, they said, you know, you're going to go fully into sales now because we need you there and we've got customers calling in. And so I, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to do this for a year, maybe two years and to use this as a springboard, you know, to do something else and be more directly involved with music on that level. But I found that uh, I really enjoyed the job. I really enjoyed the company. Uh, we were growing like crazy. And uh, 28 years later, here I am still.
0: I understand that Sweetwater's founder, uh, Chuck Surak, founded Sweetwater as a, uh, originally as a remote recording studio out of his uh, Volkswagen mi- uh, microbus and also had a recording studio based out of his home and uh, then expanded this into being a an instrument retailer with an emphasis on, uh, on pre and post, cus, uh, sales, customer services.
1: That's right. Yeah. He, uh, he started the company back in 1979 and, mm. uh, primarily out of his little VW microbus, uh, he had a four track, uh, reel to reel recorder in there and he would go around and record bands, record schools, churches, you know, you name it. Um, and also had the studio in his house, um, and uh, as part of his studio, um, yeah. Well, that basically that's how he started. So,
0: and it grew yeah. from there. I yeah. Uh, yeah, I understand that he uh, also made use of programming skills and sound and developing sound libraries with the Kurzweil K, two hundred and fifty synthesizer, which was a programmable keyboard that came out in nineteen eighty four. And uh, at the time, it was this was very new technology, and uh, anybody that had a uh, had some kind of mastery over that had uh, very
1: marketable skill. Yeah, that's right. That was really the turning point for all of it. Um, so the the Kurzweil the K250 was actually the very first sampling keyboard um, that came out back then. So um, Chuck had the foresight to. uh, To recognize the power of you know samples and and how that might work and so he actually started developing sample libraries for it um just using local musicians and and creating these libraries with you know of course back then it was a very tiny amount of memory that was on there so he had to learn some programming chops to make it sound more realistic and that sort of thing and so the word got out that he had developed these libraries and, you know, it was a very expensive keyboard at the time. And so some of the major stars, uh, guys like Stevie Wonder and Kenny Rogers, and I i don't know who all uh, basically found out that Chuck was developing the sample libraries and started purchasing them. And um, of course, being a very big, kind of unwieldy keyboard with a lot of mechanical aspects to it. they eventually would break down and uh, you know, Chuck's a very, he's a sharp guy. And it was a case where he basically learned how to repair um, the instrument when things would go bad. So folks started actually sending the keyboards to him uh, and he would repair them and send them back and connect them with the sample libraries and, Basically, that's how Sweetwater started as primarily a Kurzweil dealer. And then Mm. shortly after the 250 came out, you know, you had some of the very first Kurzweil's and leading up to the K2000, which was a pretty revolutionary instrument. And uh, that was a real springboard uh, for us to start selling um, just lots and lots of instruments that way. And, and, uh, yep, that's how it all got started.
0: What was Kurzweil's? reaction to him developing these
1: sound libraries uh you know that's a good question i could i could see why you asked that yeah i uh i i don't really know the answer to be quite honest <laughs> i'm not aware that there was but uh um i have a feeling he kind of once he started and once people found out that um you know he developed a partnership with kurzweil and uh you know i i would think Probably a lot of synth manufacturers and sampler manufacturers. You know, if you're making libraries for it, you're really adding value to the instrument. And uh, so, I, I assume that was more of that kind of relationship. But that, that goes back quite a ways. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. That kind of that kind of uh, thing would make sense because he's actually contributing to to to, to research and development of their of their uh, flagship products. Absolutely. Anyway, you uh, hold certifications from a number of manufacturers like Avid, Apogee, Moog, etc. Did you get these uh, through uh, your uh, through uh, something that, a- that was arranged with Sweetwater?
1: Yeah, all of it. Yeah, so that's one of the things that um, I've really enjoyed about the job, and I think uh, really kudos to the company for you know, we're, we're all about training and expertise. Mm-hmm. And so we bring manufacturers in constantly to provide training. And, um, a lot of times, like with some of those certifications, like for, for the Moog one, for instance, I was sent out to Asheville, North Carolina, to the Moog headquarters, um, uh, to really do some very in-depth training at their facility out there. Um, so that's been a constant in, in all these years that I've been there. Um, You know, their manufacturers are coming in and not just daily kind of sales meetings, but often um, we set up very detailed training uh, uh, and certifications on weekends and evenings and that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, So, yeah, it's all been through Sweetwater.
0: Hmm. Constant uh, educational process. uh, Oh,
1: yeah. You have to. Investing in their own people. Sure. I mean, trying to stay on, on the edge of this stuff is... More than a full-time job, as oh, most yeah, of us probably yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's constantly evolving
0: and constantly changing. Sweetwater, I understand, has a campus that, uh, uh, that, that includes its corporate offices, a distribution center, recording studios, perform- two performance venues, uh, a, a music academy, a brick and mortar retail store, and as well as uh, customer and employee amenities. Uh, that sounds like a like quite a setup you guys got there.
1: Yeah, it's really impressive, and uh, I would urge any of any of the folks out there to come pay us a visit in little old Fort Wayne, Indiana. I guarantee yeah, I it's unlike any music store you'll ever see. <laughs> yeah, I might just do that. <laughs> a lot of people compare it to something like a Google campus. Um, mm. Where people just want to be there, you know, and it's a case where uh, it feels like, you know, I've been there for 28 years now, and it's a case where I think construction has been going on since day one, it feels like. Mm. Um, so we're constantly building, expanding, refining, improving the facilities, and uh, really trying to make it a destination for folks to come visit us and, you know, musicians and teachers, and, you know, you you know, touring musicians are always coming through. Um, it's it's pretty exciting place to be. Yeah. Mm,
0: sounds good. I understand that, uh, Sweetwater also engages in philanthropic and charitable works.
1: That's right. Um, as you can imagine, we're approached by an enormous number of folks out there with an enormous variety of needs. And, uh, um, you know, Chuck the founder and, and owner of the company has, uh, uh, he's very philanthropic. you know he's he's from Fort Wayne originally and has chosen to keep the company there when we could have easily changed or expanded into other areas. And uh, he's a, a firm believer in uh, giving back to the community. And um, so there are so many examples it would take hours to talk about basically all the help that he gives folks. And you know, we have people reaching out to us from around the world. Um, you know, a lot of it is focused more in Fort Wayne and in the state of Indiana, but um, you know, uh, we've definitely helped um, folks in a huge variety of situations uh, all over the world. Really,
0: mm. that's something that a lot of uh, companies really need to do. It's it's the right thing to do, I think.
1: Yeah, I've uh, I can think of a couple times where I've spoken to Chuck where he's gone and give talks to universities and other organizations religious organizations uh you know you name it where um he's done a lot of research about the benefits of music and and audio and uh you know he's somebody that really uh you can tell he's very passionate and firmly believes in the power of music and the healing capabilities of it and um you know that's a bit of the driving principle i think behind the company and and his focus that way And that obviously contributed to their
0: success. From your perspective, how has musical instrument retail changed since you began at Sweetwater? What kind of processes did you and the company have to go through in order to adapt to those changes?
1: That's a great question. Um, Well, when I started, all that we sold were Kurzweil's um, basic recording equipment, uh, basically pro audio equipment at the time, and that was it. Um, so our focus, you know, was on tape recorders, mixers, microphones, um, you know, some of the basic synthesizers at the time, Mm -hmm. um, samplers start coming out and that sort of thing. And, uh, the vision at that time was that we wanted to be known as the experts, um, on those products. And we did not want to dilute that by getting into other things. Um, so, but over the years that we found that. Um, you know, partially just to keep the company growing, but also we felt like we could move these areas of expertise into other kinds of products and 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 whatnot that way. So, you know, uh, we started going into guitars and basses and amplifiers and live sound and lighting and computers and, you know, that sort of thing that, you know, it all ties together that way. Um, boy, it's, you know, I think back in the early days, like if somebody wanted to, Start a recording studio, you know, the basic package was you bought an ADAT, uh, a Mackie mixer, a couple microphones, and, you know, there you go. Uh, obviously, that's changed radically <laughs> over the years. Oh, yeah. You know, we moved through all the different kinds of little multi-track recorders, you know, mini-discs, uh, DAT machines you know all that's obsolete now at this point um, mm-hmm. as we move more and more into of course then it became ADATs and if you remember the task m like DA 88s um, yeah, basically eight track recorders that were built around videotapes of all things and mm-hmm. that really revolutionized I think the the home recording studio um, industry and um, so you know uh, basically uh, you know, just on the recording side of things, obviously things have changed dramatically where almost everybody's using computers now and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I find, I think we're in a really interesting time right now where there's an interesting hybrid of kind of analog and digital technologies and uh, you know, a lot of di- uh, digitally controlled analog equipment um, I think is something that a lot of folks are interested in and in getting kind of the sound quality and the vibe and, the randomness and, and all that, that analog can provide, but the control and, uh, you know, consistency in the digital world. Um, so, you know, talk about a lot of different products that that applies to, um, you know, and we look at things like, oh, guitars as an example. Um, you look at all the technology changes there, you know, it's moved on a lot from a guy plugging a Les Paul into a Marshall stack. Um, <laughs> now you've got all these modeling pieces of equipment and, um, you know, there's so many different ways to go with all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, so it's, I don't know how that answers your question, but.
0: <laughs> oh, it actually answers it uh, sure. beautifully. And I, I also <laughs> imagine that uh, one of the factors is whether or not certain things are cost effective. Analog recording is as marvelous as it sounds it's uh, something that uh well let's let's be kind and say that it uh, <laughs> eats money <laughs> by the by the ton and it's it's becoming more and more difficult to keep those ma- those older machines maintained yeah but anyway it seems like uh the factor of cost is something that dictates uh, not only the development but uh, what products are successful with consumers like back in the old days. Uh, uh, you had the uh, Synclavier when that came out. It was marvelous technology that was able to do these these wonderful sequencing and composing costs something like twenty thousand dollars, and the average. Guy who's flipping burgers at McDonald's and dreaming about being the next Vangelis can't afford that. And now, you know, we've got anybody with a laptop in Ableton or something similar to that can uh, (laughs) get those same features.
1: Oh, yeah. Even in your phone now.
0: (laughs) On on our, uh, yeah, we're carrying carrying these things around in uh, in our pockets. (laughs) How has the COVID pandemic affected? musical instrument retail and uh, now that things are opening up what changes have you seen as a result of this
1: well when it first started I um maybe I wasn't thinking correctly but I assumed things our business might take a nosedive in that regard and frankly it's been more or less the opposite um Mm. so what I found was uh You know, everybody and their mother who's ever wanted to learn how to play a guitar or keyboard, you know, of course, was stuck at home. And that was a perfect time for them to start learning Mm -hmm. and because they had lots of spare time and lots of time to surf the Internet and explore instruments and whatnot that way. Uh, Of course, the whole explosion and podcasting and live streaming. um, Mm. So everybody needed that kind of equipment. And that stuff has just flown off the shelves um, to ridiculous levels. Uh, You know, we've sold more you know, sure SM7 microphones and focus, right, scarlet interfaces than you could possibly imagine uh, going <laughs> everywhere. Um, so, you know, on that level, plus I, you know, I, I'm i somebody who works with a lot of institutions, whether that's um, religious institutions or educational institutions. And I found as, as an example, um, a lot of the churches that I work with, You know, uh, we're choosing this time, you know, kind of this downtime when they didn't have folks in the congregation there physically uh, to update and upgrade their sound systems, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, So, all of that's actually contributed to a lot of growth uh, on our part. Um, So, I've noticed, you know, as things are starting to open back up again, you know, the whole everything to do with live sound has just been selling like crazy. So whether that's speakers, mixers, wireless systems, um, you know, all that sort of thing, um, uh, uh, has been really, really strong. And, you know, the problem now is just supply chain issues. Um, you know, so many manufacturers are just struggling to get stuff to us. Um, but you know, hopefully that's a temporary situation, but, um, So, yeah, I, you know, and and just in general, you know, I speak to, I I feel like I have a lot of good relationships with a lot of musicians and audio directors and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, folks have really struggled and, but it's a case where I'm noticing a lot of renewed optimism over the last couple months uh, with a lot of folks that I'm speaking with that are bound and determined to get out there in the world one way or the other and start making music again. And um, that's, that's encouraging to hear and see.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that uh, some of the changes that uh, people were using to adapt to the to the whole isolation thing are uh, spilling over into into what's what they're starting to call the new normal.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm talking to some you know bands as an example who are feel like they're always going to have say live streaming as part of their you know, their whole situation now. So that'll kind of augment some of the actual physical live shows that they're doing and, you know, trying to kind of walk that line of, of getting themselves out there in both the physical and the virtual worlds that way. In August, 2021
0: Providence Equity purchased uh, a majority share of Sweetwater stock. How, uh, how has this affected the company?
1: So yeah, uh, so that was a, a major recent development here, just uh, in the last few months, uh, Chuck uh, decided to sell the majority stake of the company to Providence. Um, uh, I think due in part to Chuck wants to c- focus more on some of the philanthropic activities that he's involved with, uh, excuse me, involved with with the city and, and that sort of thing, and um, he, uh, they created a, a board and he's still chairman of the board, so it's a case where he still has a lot of uh, feedback and um, you know, guidance in terms of the day-to-day activities of the company. Um, so far, the only thing that's really changed is I feel like we've had maybe a little bit of an influx in capital um, from this Providence group in order for us to try to acquire more inventory and whatnot. Um, they uh, made a very, very big deal that they were only going to do this if a company uh, recognized how Sweetwater became what Sweetwater is, and you know, not make any sweeping changes um, to our business model, which is all about relationships and support. And um, and they've so far have felt like Sweetwater is a pretty unique organization in the way that we interact with customers and the way we do business. And it's a case where. In some ways, um, from what I'm hearing, they're, they're learning a lot from the way Sweetwater has been run over these last few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, time will tell. Um, I feel positive about it. And I know a lot of my colleagues do. And uh, so far, so good. Mm-hmm. But nothing, nothing has really changed at all from what I can tell.
0: What were some of the more uh, unusual experiences that you had in the business every um. musician anybody in the music <laughs> business once they get together inevitably there's going to be stories
1: oh sure our lives just generate stories <laughs> i uh boy i feel <laughs> like i one could of yours. i could feel like it could fill a book with uh, <laughs> with with all kinds of crazy things that i've seen and experienced and some good and some not so good but <laughs> um i know it's one light. example i could think of <laughs> yeah, exactly um I, uh, I work with a a gentleman who, uh, is, uh, from the democratic Republic of Congo and, uh, he, uh, actually left Africa to come to America. He lives in Minnesota and, uh, he, uh, really an amazing gentleman who, uh, is deeply involved with his church back home in, in the Republic of Congo. And so, uh, to make a long story short, we basically put together an entire setup, you know, it was about, I think, fifty or $60,000 worth of equipment. Um, so a lot of instruments and live sound equipment and that sort of thing. And the uh, challenge was actually, you know, that country, unfortunately, is so corrupt on so many levels. Uh, just trying to get the equipment over to them um, was – a challenge that i never thought we would have (laughs) the way it played out so the bottom line is it took us basically a year uh, after shipping the gear for them for it to actually arrive um safe and sound over there (laughs) so it was a long winding road uh through all kinds of issues with customs and you know uh taxes and duties and oh and corruption <laughs> and all that mixed together mm-hmm. um so that that was that was quite an interesting time and an interesting challenge in dealing the with year, all that took, so yeah yeah so if, if you can believe that <laughs> i'm amazed still that it actually ever arrived so yeah um. <laughs> actually i do, I do believe you.
0: <laughs> in, uh, musicians for musicians who obviously produces this podcast, uh, shares something in common with Sweetwater that uh, one of our great motiv- biggest motives is empowering musicians. Do you see any possibility of uh, MFM uh, collaborating or uh, uh, working together or, uh, on uh, on any kind of uh, project?
1: Um, you know, I, I'm certainly open to it. And I, I think a lot of folks at Sweetwater would be um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'd be happy to have that conversation, um, whatever that may take, but certainly. Mm,
0: okay. Finally, uh, I understand that, uh, Sweetwater is often offering, offering a discount to MFM members. Uh, what are some of the details of this and how can, uh, MFM members, uh, get in on this?
1: Sure. Yeah. That's something we'd be happy to offer. Um, it's difficult to put something official in place just because, especially nowadays, you know, things are changing so rapidly in terms of um, some of the pricing situations and more and more manufacturers are actually not allowing us to discount the the products as far as our dealer agreements. But um, I would urge anybody in the organization to either reach out to me directly and I'm happy to offer whatever kind of discount I can. And, you know, it's hard to put an exact number on that depending on the products, but um, or if they're already... Working with a sales engineer at Sweetwater to have that sales engineer talk to me uh, to make sure that we're all on the same page, and um, yeah, happy more than happy to offer something like that. Well, we appreciate that. Yeah, thank. You. I think that
0: uh, just about covers everything. Um, is there anything you'd like to say in uh, conclusion?
1: But, you know, through meeting you and and Sorab and, and some Sourabh of the folks, Dr. Javardi is the president of MFM. Yeah, sure. So some wonderful folks that I've met already that, and I look forward to working with uh, anybody and everybody in the organization and uh, getting to meet them and know them a little bit better. And, and uh, I'd be more than happy to, to offer, you know, whatever discounts that we can put together that way. And yeah, you know, for the folks that have not worked with Sweetwater before, it's, it's definitely a, a not a typical experience where you're, you know, calling a place that's going to ship a box and, you know, you're talking to somebody who's leafing through a catalog. So we're all about relationships. So when you connect with somebody at Sweetwater, that's who you'll work with um, for the future. You know, and the whole idea there is for, you know, the, the, the client and the salesperson to get to know each other and to get to know your needs and be able to have a dialogue and conversation that way and, you know, be your point man there and be able to help um, on all those levels. So that's what we really strive for. We all uh, appreciate the work that you do. And, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. We appreciate your support.
0: Our guest was Jeffrey Green. The topics we discussed included Jeffrey's beginnings and interest in the cello, his backgrounds in electronic music and recording, his career in musical instrument retail with Sweetwater, Sweetwater's founder, Chuck Surak, his certifications from manufacturers such as Avid, Apogee, Moog, etc., the unique idea behind Sweetwater's campus and their philanthropic efforts, Providence Equity's purchase of a majority share of Sweetwater's stock, the historical changes and predictions for the future of musical instrument retail, Jeffrey's most unusual experiences in this business, and the relationship between MFM and Sweetwater and a possible collaboration to empower musicians. Finally, Jeffrey and Sweetwater have generously offered MFM members a deeper than normal discount. MFM members can contact Jeff at jeff underscore green at sweetwater.com or at 1 800 222 4700 extension 1272. If MFM members interested in this have an existing relationship with a Sweetwater sales engineer, they can have them reach out to Jeffrey and he will give them the details. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this one in 2012, hit the subscribe button. Our thanks for your support. We did very well last year. We found new audiences and brought incredible stories and content. We plan to do more of this in the years ahead, and we have always been consistent An important step toward the success of the music community is in building a different media. If you want to help us on that journey, go to musiciansformusicians.org. You can become a supporter and help our work reach even more people. My name is Dawood Kringle, and you've been listening to MFM Speaks Out. Thanks for joining us. We're going to leave you with a little bit more music. This is a rare live recording that Jeffrey Green did in 2019. Ooh. Um.
2: Thank mm-hmm. you. I'm <laughs>
0: leave, we have a few announcements. As we struggle to emerge from the pandemic, we must remember what's most important in our lives, music. In light of this, MFM's annual membership drive, running from November 1st through November 30th, 2021, is reaching out to all working musicians of all genres, inviting you to join MFM in supporting and helping to continue MFM's mission. MFM provides vital resources for the professional musicians, including educational webinars, advice regarding government unemployment benefits, and other resources, our monthly podcast, our online magazine, doobie doobie Do. info, musician advocacy with politicians and collaborations with other musicians' rights organizations to improve musicians' lives via legislation, Our chapter in New York City and the Hudson Valley chapter in Kingston, New York, with an international digital presence. Some of our recent accomplishments include the United States Library of Congress selecting MFM's website for inclusion in the historic collection of Internet materials related to the professional organizations for performing arts web archives, collective action by the MFM membership supporting the Partisan American Music Fairness Act, HR 4130, which was introduced by Representatives Ted Deutsch and Daryl Issa in Congress in June of 2021, and MFM's alliance with the German Freelance Musicians Association, Pro Music. For more information, visit us at musiciansformusicians.org. Don't forget about our $12 service fee waiver. And finally, to reiterate, Jeffrey Green and Sweetwater have generously offered MFM members the opportunity for discounts. MFM members can contact Jeff at jeff green sweetwater.com or at 800-222-4700, extension 1272,